children ages 3 through 1st grade are welcome to Children's Church outside these doors. And the rest of you, I hope you'll open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. We're doing a a series in the, the minor prophet Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament and it might be kind of new for some of you to be reading um, either out of the Old Testament or the Minor Prophets, for instance. Um, Malachi was, was written um, because God was concerned about the inconsistencies and even the, the hypocrisy in his people. And, you know, that's one of the major complaints about the church today. Things haven't changed much in 2,500-odd years. And one of, the, one of the things that adds fuel to that, you know, bonfire of, of criticism is uh, the marriage and divorce, uh, divorce rate, basically. Um, you know, when you think about marriages in our nation, the average is about 50%. And how many of you have heard that that statistic isn't much different uh, among Christians? Have you heard that before? Okay, roughly 50%. Well, the, uh, the, the news out of the, uh, actually out of UVA, that Bradford Wilcox is the head of the marriage, um, shoot, I'm going to get this organization's name, uh, I want to get it accurate, the National Marriage Project. You can go online uh, to stateofourunions.org. Uh, the, the news from there is that it, among Christians, it's not exactly what it seems. So, um, you know, it's, it's not great news, but it is good to hear that once they dig a little deeper and scratch under the surface of, you know, what, is it, what do they mean by a Christian, what they found was that among those who were committed, conservative, Protestant Christians, um, those who would say that they're not only a Christian, but they're, they're, and they're not only born again, but they're, they're really living out their lives as disciples, that among those, uh, the percentage is 35% less than uh, a secular community uh, than, than the secular statistics. So, um, so hey, you think, well, that's better. It's still not great news, but, but there is a significant difference. Furthermore, and this is the curious thing, what they found was that on the one hand, you've got those who really are trying to be sincere and committed in, in their Christianity, in their faith. And then on, on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the nominal very sparsely attending uh, church, you know, not very consistent at all, um, just sort of Christians in name but and not much else to, to show for it, they actually had a 20% higher rate of divorce than secular community, the non-religious types. Uh, and when you look at the 25, 35% less among committed Christians, 20% more among just uncommitted, you know, uh, sort of name-only Christians, they sort of cancel each other out a little bit. I mean, it skews in favor of, um, of those who are committed, but that's where you get some of that. So I want to get back to that 20% uh, later on in the sermon, but that's just a little bit of, of intro, because God is going to express his heart and his concern against not only, um, you know, remarriage, but divorce in order to, to accomplish that, uh, that remarriage. And, uh, and that's part of what we need to wrestle with in our community of of Christians today. So if you've got your Bible open to Malachi chapter 2, we're going to read verses uh, 10 through 16. Um, Let's honor God by standing in honor of his word. This is the word of the Lord. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? 
why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altars with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit, and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Father, we pray that you would teach us to guard ourselves in our spirit, to be faithful as you are faithful. You are the covenant-keeping groom of your spouse, the bride. We thank you for bringing us into her number, for setting your affection on us, and for pledging yourself for an eternity uh, to love us uh, with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. May we love you in return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, uh, in your bulletins, there's an outline just giving you a a trajectory of where we're going. I want to begin by just this complaint over and over again. In Malachi, you run into these questions on behalf of God's people. Uh, God brings up a concern. They go, well, what do you mean? Why, why are you upset, or what have we done to, to, to do what you're saying uh, has been wrong? In this case, uh, breaking faith and, uh, and acting unfaithfully has a number of expressions. And they are asking, God, why do you not accept our offerings? We bring these sacrifices to you, we pray to you, and you don't accept our offerings. What's going on? And he begins by talking about how, as a people, as a nation, Israel is being unfaithful. And then as individuals... Members of that nation, they are being unfaithful. So to start with, looking at, uh, at the nation as a whole, they had been called out of all the other nations to walk faithfully with their God, and out of all of these other uh, communities and people groups that were all worshiping lots of different gods and goddesses and beings and entities, God calls Israel to himself and he says, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to worship me and me alone. Furthermore, I am the only true God. Every other being, every other God, you know, little g is a mirage, is an illusion, it's an idol, it's false, it's, it's powerless. I'm the one true God and I want you to worship me alone. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all of your strength. Then God brings his people to to Mount Sinai. You remember the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, and all the things that were communicated from that mountain of fire and smoke and lightning and earthquake and so on. And God speaks to Israel and he says, Do not worship any other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land. For 
when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you, and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. Which is God expressing in a parable fashion the true nature of our relationship with him. We are betrothed to him. When we worship another god or you know, other gods, we're acting unfaithfully to him. It's prostitution, it's adultery, it's whatever. And, and God's concern is, listen, if you even marry outside of our covenant community, inevitably what ends up happening is that the, the pagan influence influences the, the true uh, spiritual uh, partner in, in a negative way rather than the other way around. Um, here's what one author said, because some people get concerned. What is, this, what is this prohibition against marrying foreign people? Well, the prohibition isn't against marrying foreign people. It's against marrying foreign people who worship foreign gods. And this is how one author put it. When the Old Testament prohibited certain marriage arrangements, it did so not on racial, but on religious grounds. For the testimony of God and the witness of history reveals that whenever a worshiper of Yahweh married a person from another religion, the pagan standard usually prevailed. Which is why, in the New Covenant, on the other side of the cross of Christ, the same principle holds true. And Paul tells the, first, uh, tells the Corinthian community, uh, actually in 2 Corinthians, he says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Well, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Don't go down that road. Don't marry somebody that's not as committed to, you, to, to the Lord Jesus as you are. Uh, and, and that's the provision so that we would be, you know, the expression is equally yoked. Um, so obviously God's people were becoming unfaithful to the one true God. And they were worshiping other gods. They were allowing those, those uh, other influences into their, their homes and into the community through marrying uh, and, and those kinds of arrangements. But there was something else that was going on that was even um, more grievous. The nation as a whole was allowing these influences to come in. They were being unfaithful, but the individuals were too. And here's how it was working. They were not only simply taking to themselves um, you know, spouses, whether they were wives or husbands, uh, from other religions, but they were divorcing their own faithful spouses, faithful to Yahweh, faithful to them, in order to remarry, in order to marry outside of the covenant. Um, you know, the language here is you're, you're being unfaithful to the wife of your youth. So conceivably what, would, what was happening is, you know, a young couple, they get married, they're, they're worshiping the Lord, they've been raised in, in God's covenant community, and, you know, one of them gets tired. They just get bored. And that was really what was going on in Malachi's day. Everybody was just bored. Bored with religion, bored with church, bored with God. The gospel was just, you know, didn't have any savor to it anymore. And they wanted something new and exciting and exotic. And so they were willing to trade in not just their religion, but their wives or their husbands as well. Training them in for a newer model, right? Something more exotic. Some of some bells and whistles. Some of some zip and some pow and some, you know, Something to get the blood going again, right? Isn't that how it works? You know, you trade in the old spouse, get a new spouse. Trade in the old God, get a new God. Trade in both. You know, have some fun with it. And God's saying, this is awful. 
awful what you're doing. You're breaking faith. You're breaking the covenant. And, uh, and, and God says this is wrong. Um, hey, let's, let's just kind of do a little excursion, an excursus on uh, divorce, remarriage, those dynamics. Uh, now that we're on this side of the cross, Malachi is preaching to a community 400 to 500 years before Jesus. What do we do with all the divorce and remarriage going on in the church? Um, some things that I want to point out. 1 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul has a lot to say about divorce, remarriage, marriage in itself. And um, he says this, that a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. Uh, but if her husband dies, she is free to, re- to, to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. There you have that provision for not being unequally yoked again. Married somebody that loves Jesus. Um, I don't think most people don't argue that if a widow, widow or widower, male or female, um, if their spouse dies, they're, they're free to remarry. Actually, in some circles of the church, they're small, they're small pockets. They would say, no, you're only supposed to have one spouse. But um, here Paul is saying, clearly, you can remarry if, if you're a widow, uh, but you have to marry within the Lord. But that's obviously not what's happening, um, whether you're in the church or outside the church. I, didn't, I did not grow up uh, in the church. My family were not churchgoers which may explain some of the, the issues in my own family, in my own background. Um, my mom and dad split when I was three years old. Uh, me and my brother, he was a year behind me, and um, our parents uh, divorced. Uh, my mom went on to marry again, and that was a, a very short duration uh, for that marriage. And then she married a third time, and then that marriage did not last. Uh, lasted longer than my dad's or her second marriage, but... In the end, her third marriage failed, and so she's been divorced three times. My dad uh, was married once before my mom, and they divorced. Married my mom, they divorced. Married a third time, divorced my stepmother, and is married a fourth time now. And that's all public knowledge. There's nothing, you know, um, that uh, you, can, you can find that out for yourself, but uh, I'm not trying to cast any aspersions or whatever. I'm just saying that they were doing the best they could with what they had, but what they had was not much. They didn't have the covenant. They didn't have a view of the Lord who loves us and gave himself for us to, to help them understand what does it mean to love each other. Um, I can tell you that marriage is precious. Divorce is awful. And when Christians pursue unbiblical divorces and pursue a remarriage that's not allowed uh, in Scripture, bad things happen whether you know, you're outside of the church or especially when you're inside the church. There are a couple of allowances, though, for divorce that will allow you to remarry within the church that are actually sanctioned by God. It doesn't compel you to get divorced. It doesn't compel you to be remarried. But if your spouse does you know, X, Y, or Z, then you are allowed, if you want, to pursue a divorce, and you are allowed because it's sanctioned to be remarried. first one is adultery. Uh, Jesus spoke to this himself, and he said, listen, um, let, me, let me read you the passage uh, from Matthew 19, verse 9. He says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Um, and the same holds to either gender. You know, any spouse commits uh, marital unfaithfulness and marries another, uh, they've committed adultery. So in that case, divorce is allowed by the spouse that's been offended, and they can remarry. Um, second instance, 
uh, abandonment is how it's generally uh, generally summarized, and uh, we're just going through this quickly. And there's lots of other you know, extenuating circumstances and issues, so don't, don't by any means hear this as a total summary, summation of everything you need to know. Um, if you've got questions, I invite you to contact me or any of the elders, and, and we'll walk through some of these things with you. Uh, but here's what abandonment means. Paul addresses this again in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Here's um, Conceivably, this is what's going on. Two unbelievers who are married, and then one becomes a Christian. And that Christian... Uh, the, the new Christian is saying, hey, I want to live as a disciple, and I hear what it means to live as a disciple, that I shouldn't be unequally yoked. What do I do with my unbelieving spouse? And Paul's saying, don't divorce them. Stay with them uh, if they want to stay. And then he goes on to say, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. They, the children are blessed um, through that even if only one spouse is a Christian. And he says this, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So if the unbelieving spouse says, I don't want to abide by this marriage covenant anymore, the believing spouse is not bound the unbelieving spouse can have what they want, and the believing spouse is free to remarry. Now, sometimes this raises the question about, well, is that you know, a physical separation, or is there something else that would constitute abandonment of the covenant? And again, this is one of those very situationally specific circumstances where you have issues that come up like you know, physical abuse and, and other things, and you go, well, what's going on here? And Generally, this needs to involve the church. Generally, this needs to involve, first of all, if you have two Christians and one of them is acting in a way that's just awful and is not consistent with the covenant at all, and you know, let's use physical abuse for that matter, the church needs to get involved. And that professing and abusing person needs to be brought to repentance. If they will not repent, the church is compelled, because of what Jesus said in Matthew 18, to treat that person as you would an unbeliever. They're not demonstrating faith in Christ. That person becomes an unbelieving spouse in the eyes of the church, in the eyes of God. And they've abandoned the terms of the covenant because they're you know, pounding on their spouse. That is not keeping the covenant. And generally, you know, um, churches in that case say, yeah, that looks like abandonment. And uh, there's circumstances like that, right? And you're not to... Figure that out by yourself. God did not leave you alone in, in circumstances like that. God did not leave Christians alone in circumstances like that. And that's why he gives us the church. And that's why um, if, if you or anybody you know is in a circumstance that would seem, has some overlap to that, you know, don't fight that battle. Don't go through that by yourself. Involve brothers and sisters in Christ who can help you, um, your church especially, uh, if you're a member of a church. So, you know, the, the question of uh, adultery, abandonment, etc., other, other, um, does this constitute biblical grounds for divorce or remarriage? These questions come up, but what I want to acknowledge is that there's probably some of you here in this room, and 
you look at your life and you look at your past and you go, I don't think I had biblical grounds for my divorce. And here I am, remarried. I want to live as a Christian. I want to be, I, I want to be sincere. I want to be an authentic disciple. What do I do? You know, the first thing you need to do is, is look, do the first thing you did when you became a Christian, which is look to Jesus. The answer is not to go and make a mess of your current marriage. But the, it does involve repenting of some mistakes that you've made in your past and coming to grips with those and being honest to, with the Lord before him about where have I contributed to the mess and where do I need forgiveness, you know, for whatever, you know, is going to best describe the circumstances that were in your past. I do want to promise you on the basis of Jesus hanging on a cross that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. For those who understand that I have sinned and who aren't trying to play fast and loose and aren't trying to play you know, uh, re- religious chess with God to try to make their lives and their decisions look better in the sight of God and His law. The best place to start is honesty and integrity. I've messed up or... You know, this is a mess, and I need help figuring out that mess. What do I need to own? What do I not own? Again, you know, talk to, talk to me. Talk to your elders. Talk to your friends, and, and don't try to answer those questions by yourself. But the best thing to do is be honest and to seek the Lord who offers forgiveness for all who, who sin, no matter what the sin is. And it puts us on a path and a fresh start, a clean start. Um, all right, so I want to look at now what do we do in light of, you know, God's concern about the unfaithfulness of his people and the expression, the individual expressions of that. He says that he's a faithful groom. And the reason why God hates divorce is not only because of what it does within the, the dynamics of the community and in the family, but it has higher stakes too that we'll get to in a second. But God hates divorce for a number of reasons, some of which are, are listed here in Malachi 2. Um, by the way, some of your versions in verse 16 were... were you know, if you've heard any verse from Malachi before, probably the verse was verse 16, uh, chapter 2, uh, God hates divorce, right? Well, some of your versions say it's, it's a tricky verse to translate, and so they'll put it this way, for the man who hates and then divorces, uh, says the Lord, the God of Israel, uh, that person covers his garment with violence, etc. Um, you know, the, the translation isn't immediately easy to figure out, but you come away with the same message, Divorce is bad. Um, what leads to divorce is bad. And, uh, and the reason why it's bad is because of how it, it, it's an demonstration of breaking faith. You know, one or both parties uh, are breaking faith five times in these seven verses. You hear the, the, the echo of breaking faith, breaking faith, breaking faith. Uh, friends, when we make promises to one another, those promises ought to be reliable especially when a, a bride and a groom come before the, their witnesses and their family and before God and say, I'm making this promise to you, so help me God, and until death separates us. It's a lifelong promise. That's what marriage is. It's a lifelong covenant of love between a man and a woman. And divorce breaks that. Uh, and, it's a, and it's that breaking of faith. It affects the kids, too. God says that he wants godly offspring. He's concerned about the children. Um, you know, one of the things that the, that marriage project, uh, the State of Our Unions, will, will demonstrate is that in families where there are you know, both spouses who stick it out, even though it can be tough, 
uh, both spouses are sticking out, those children end up two to three times better off you know, in terms of positive life outcomes. And there's a whole list of what, what it is that's a positive life outcome. But the kids are two to three times better off than in a single-parent home. Um, furthermore, in believing homes, I mean, that just holds true in general, but in, in homes where, there are, where the gospel is communicated and believed, God has a concern that the children see how the gospel works, how the gospel helps us be patient with one another, how the gospel helps us reconcile with one another, how the gospel helps us bear one another's burdens, how the gospel helps us forgive each other. And when Christian husbands and wives split, whether it's you know a biblical divorce or an unbiblical divorce, when that happens, it, sh- it tells the kids that hey, the gospel doesn't seem to work very well. And God's concerned about what our children believe. Um, you know, you keep going down this list and you see that God ultimately, uh, in, concern, in his concern for his people, says that breaking uh, this covenant does violence. Uh, you cover yourself with violence. This whole language of um, the covenant of oneness, that a covenant is a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love is the way that uh, the, the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it. And I think that's a great summary. God takes two people and he joins them together, and he says they're going to be one as long as they both shall live. And when you pull those two apart, that which God has joined together, they are worse off apart than they were before they came together. There's a oneness that happened, and when they are torn apart, they are not the same people that originally came together to form that covenant. In a sense, they're worse off. Because God did something in that union that now has been torn apart. It doesn't mean that they're beyond help or hope. No question about that. The gospel gives us help and hope. But divorce is hard. It's bad. God says he hates it. The number one reason why God hates divorce, ultimately, as much as he despises what the effects of, that it has on the man, the woman, and if there are children involved, etc., the biggest thing that grieves God's heart about divorce is what it tells the world, especially in Christian circles, about the story of marriage. Because God does hate divorce, but the reason why he hates divorce is because he loves, he loves what marriage communicates. Marriage is a picture. It's a, it's a picture of God's faithfulness and, and Jesus' love for us. Uh, one author put it this way, it's designed to tell a story to the entire church, a story about God's relationship with and saving work among us. God says that he is our maker and our husband. Jesus says that he is our, our groom, our heavenly groom, and the church is his bride. I want you to listen to Ephesians chapter 5 here. I know it's a familiar passage to some of you, but listen to it fresh and listen to it with regard to what Jesus wants to do for his bride. Listen to his work for his people. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. This is a profound mystery. 
But I am talking about Christ and the church. Each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. There's a couple of things going on here that I think are really, really important. The first thing is this, that when we look at the work of Jesus on behalf of his people, he's doing things like making us holy and blameless in his sight. Radiant. Without stain or wrinkle. And I'm talking to a group of people here who I think it would be a very safe assumption for me to know that there are people here who are divorced, There are people here who are thinking about a divorce. And there are people here who maybe are married, maybe you're not married yet. But sometime in the future, divorce is going to seem like a really sweet option to you. And no matter what choice you make, no matter how bad you get into the weeds, I want you to know that through the gospel, Jesus is providing a radiance, a purity, a beauty, a a freedom from condemnation that is ours through him. It doesn't mean I want you to go out and just, you know, hey, Jesus loves me. I can go and, you know, take care of all this, you know, my pain or my struggle in my relationship, my marriage. The whole point is this. Get your sense of radiance and beauty and fullness from Jesus. Get it from him, not from your spouse. God did not design your marriage so that you can suck life from your spouse. God designed marriage so that you would get life from Jesus and then love your spouse the way Jesus loves you. That your spouse would feel the love of Jesus through you. That you would be loving your spouse in Jesus' name, not trying to get that love from your spouse, trying to get that life, trying to get that meaning, trying to get that radiance trying to get that fullness, trying to get that life from a person who wasn't made with the the ability to provide that for any other human being. You know what that's called? It's actually called idolatry. It's a religion. God made us as religious beings, and we need life and fullness and radiance and forgiveness from God, not from other people. Do you remember that 20%? oh, wait a minute, the divorce rate is 20% higher among nominal Christians or you know people that claim to be Christians but are just sort of maybe giving lip service or whatever. Here's, here's my theory, all right? This is just my idea. I think what's going on is this. People come to church. Uh, they think, all right, I'm gonna, I'm, God, I'm, I'm coming to church. I'm even sticking some money in the play and I'm doing X, Y, or Z in the name of you know, trying to check the box. And it's a contract. It becomes a religious contract rather than a relationship, rather than a covenant of love with, between a, an individual and their God. It becomes a religious contract wherein what's assumed is if I check the box, God will check my box. And if I come to church, if I put a, something in the plate or whatever the case may be, God will be obliged to bless me and bless my marriage and my marriage is on the ropes and I need some help or whatever. And I'm going to rub my genie lamp and God's going to come out and he's going to solve my problem. God just got done saying, I'm not going to answer your prayers. I'm not going to accept your sacrifices for the ways that you're treating one another. 
the selfish ways that you're divorcing your spouse and going off to trade her in or trade him in for the next mile or whatever. The only way that God hears our prayers is when we come with a heart that's humble, a heart that's broken, a heart that's contrite, that isn't bargaining with him. A heart that says, you know what, Lord, I've sinned. I deserve to be condemned, but your son was condemned in my place. That's how much he loved me. That's how much you love me. You can have your way with my life. I just want to love you back. And I want to love those that you put around me the way that you loved me. That's a heart that's in covenant with God. That's a heart that knows how to bless their spouse, even when it's hard. Marriage can be really, really difficult. It can be really, really wonderful. At the end of the day, though, our focus has to be on Jesus. His gospel has to teach us how to be married. Whether you're married or whether you're single and hope to be married or whether you're just going to, you know, God's calling you to single life the entirety of your life. Marriage is designed to show the world the faithfulness of Jesus. Our our faithful groom who will never, ever give up uh, in his love for us. Here's what I want to leave you with. A quote from Tim and Kathy Keller in their book, The Meaning of Marriage. Uh, I just think this is brilliant. Whether you're married and learning to love your spouse or whether you're not married and just learning to love your neighbor. Listen to what they say. Covenant marriage, even you could say covenant relationship, means that we must say to ourselves something like this. Well, when Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I am giving myself to you because you are so attractive to me. No, he was in agony. And he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him, and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He didn't run. He didn't divorce. He didn't separate himself from us. He, sa- he stayed and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. He loved us not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. That is why I am going to love my spouse. Speak to your heart like that. And then fulfill the promises you made on your wedding day. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have loved us. Not because we were lovely, but because you decided to love us and to enter into a lifelong, even eternal covenant relationship with us. And we pray that uh, the marriages of Tabernacle would be a, a picture of that love and of that faithfulness and of that commitment, of that sacrificial receiving uh, what you have given for us so that we might give it uh, to those that we love. Father, I pray you protect and preserve us. Uh, Keep these marriages at Tabernacle pure. Bless those that are struggling. Multiply the joys of those that are uh, feeling your pleasure. Uh, And Lord, I pray that you would protect us from the enemy. Lord, would you bless us all, um, whether we are married or single, young or old, bless us all with the realization of how much you have loved us in Christ our groom, who makes us spotless and blameless, even radiant because of his goodness and his love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.